The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the 25th chapter. Glory be to thee, O Lord. Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise be to thee, O Christ. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. But notice this, we're not talking about heavenly wisdom. We're really talking about run-of-the-mill, ordinary, common-sense, practical wisdom. It's the kind of wisdom that tells you that if you're taking a road trip, if you're going to drive to Florida and the fuel indicator light on your car is shining, you're not going to make it. You need to stop and get some gas. And if you don't stop and get gas and you get stranded on the freeway, no one's going to feel sorry for you because you should have known better. The light was on. You know that you need gas. You know you can't make it to Florida on fumes. That's the kind of wisdom we're talking about here. It's really practical wisdom, common sense kind of wisdom. Maybe you've heard this before, but the word for foolish here is actually a very precise word that comes into English as moron. They're morons, those virgins who did not bring oil to meet the bridegroom. They were not paying attention. They were not exercising common sense. They should have known better. This is the same deal that we get with the wise and the foolish builders. Jesus tells that parable. You know how it goes. There was a wise man who built his house, and where did he build it? On the rock. Because he knows if you're going to build a house, you need a stable foundation. What did the fool do? Well, he built his house on the sand. Complete folly. No one in their right mind would think that building a house on sand is a good idea. Common sense. Practical wisdom. That's the theme of this story. You don't need heavenly insight to know that if you're waiting for the bridegroom to arrive and you don't know when he is going to come and your job is to have lamps lit when he arrives, you better bring enough oil. Enough oil to last until he arrives. Enough oil so that you have extra. Enough so you have something to spare. Bring oil for your lamps. It's common sense. And it's common sense for those virgins as they sat waiting for the bridegroom. There's a little bit of a problem with the translation that we read today. It says, as the bridegroom was delayed. But there was no surprise here. It wasn't like he was held up. It wasn't like something came up and he was later than they were expecting. He was taking his time because that's what the bridegroom is supposed to do. As a part of the festival, he comes when he wants to. He arrives at the feast when it is his time, once he has fetched his bride and the bride 
the bridesmaids are there to wait. There was no unexpected delay. They should have known that it was going to take all night, perhaps. If you are part of the wedding party, if you want to be a part of the wedding party, if you want to go into the feast, your job is to wait. They were expecting a cry, and that cry came at midnight. Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. All of those virgins, those ten sitting there, the foolish and the wise, they all knew what was coming. It's unlike everyone else who wasn't invited to the party, everyone else who had rejected the invitation. They weren't waiting, they weren't expecting a cry, but these folks, they knew it. And so, these are joyous words. The feast is about to begin. Whenever you think about the end, whatever kind of an end it is, the end of your life, the end of the world, the end of an era, the end of an age, whatever kind of an end it is, know this, that for Christians, the end is joyful, because now the new is beginning. Behold, I'm doing a new thing, God says. Behold, the thing that we are waiting for has finally arrived. That's how you should think about even the end of your own lives. When you breathe your last, it is the end, and there will be tears and grief and sorrow, but see what joy, as finally you get to meet your Savior and see him face to face. Behold, here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Now there was time, plenty of time, for those foolish virgins to go and get oil. There is, in fact, a lot of time to receive help. But there comes a time, and this is part of the point of the parable, there comes a time when you can receive no help any longer. Think about all of the scenarios that you can think of in your head, the times in your life, where you would say, you had all the time in the world, why didn't you do it sooner? Why didn't you finish your homework sooner? Why didn't you study for the test sooner? Why didn't you work on your car before it was cold outside? You had all the time in the world and you waited and now you are suffering for it. There comes a time when you can no longer be helped. Here's how Solomon puts it in the Proverbs. He says, the sluggard, the lazy man, does not plow in the autumn. What will happen to him? He will seek at harvest and he will have nothing. There was a time for plowing, there's a time for planting, and there's a time for reaping. Do everything in its time. The time for collecting and obtaining and filling your jars with oil is now. There will come a time when you can't do it. A point of no return. That's what this parable is teaching us. And here's the result for those foolish virgins. They were left out entirely. The door was shut and when they came to knock, there was no, well, we were sort of prepared, or we were waiting with those other virgins, they are out. And the bridegroom says to them these terrible words, I don't know who you are. My people, the ones who are prepared, they're the ones with oil. They're the ones with light. They're the ones who were waiting the way that I told them to, stockpiling their oil for this day. Who are you? Don't know who you are. Watch, therefore, Jesus says, for you know neither the day nor the hour. That lack of knowledge, that not knowing, can push you in one of two directions. And for those foolish virgins, it pushed them in the direction of complacency. Well, we don't know when he's coming, so I guess we'll just sit here and we won't do anything. I guess we'll just sit here, be unprepared. We don't know. He could be a thousand years from now. I don't know when he's coming. There's no sense in getting ready complacency. 
laziness. The opposite of common sense. Here's how you should watch and wait with vigilance. You know neither the day nor the hour, and that means it could be the next moment. Be ready. It is gospel lessons like this one that give me, in my role as a pastor, an extraordinary sense of urgency. I find myself afraid that I haven't done enough to proclaim the message and the urgency. I find myself afraid that I haven't warned you thoroughly about this day that is coming, and so take the warning today. Pay attention. This is an urgent message. I'd like to give you some very practical advice for being prepared. What does it mean for you to have enough oil for your lamps? Truly I say to you, I do not know you. What does that mean for a Christian? It means that it may well happen that many people who thought they were Christians, who prayed, who went to church, will find out on the last day that they were not in fact praying to Jesus. They said all their prayers all the time, Dear Jesus, please help me. Help me out of trouble. I need your help. Please lead me into heaven. Please forgive all of my sins. They might have said all of those things, but they were not, in fact, praying to Jesus. How could that happen? Think about the kinds of conversations that you have in your life. Do you ever talk to yourself? That may well be what is happening when many people pray. If you want to have a conversation with someone, what do you have to do? You have to listen to them. You have to breathe in in order to breathe out. Yes, I believe in Jesus. Yes, I go to church. Yes, of course, I'm a Christian. But have you listened to Jesus? Have your prayers, has your worship been directed by him? Has his word sunk into your hearts? Have you humbled yourself and received from him goodness and life and the forgiveness of sins? Mind your prayers, mind your worship, and make sure that you're not just talking to yourself. Listen to Jesus. That's the first thing we do as Christians. We listen to Jesus. More on that in a moment. But here's how you should think practically about the end. Here's how you should think about what it means to wait for the bridegroom to return. I would urge you not to think about it as waiting for the last day. Don't think of yourselves as waiting for the end of the world. That's too abstract. You've never experienced it before. You've never seen it. No one knows the day or the hour of that coming. But you do know something else. For sure, you will die. There is coming a day when you will breathe your last. You've seen it. You've seen people die. You know loved ones who have passed away. You know that the clock is ticking. Think about the end in that way. Not in the abstract, some distant future where Jesus might return during your lifetime or after your lifetime. But when Jesus says, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour, think about your own death. And that will give you a sense of urgency. Meditate on your own death. I know no one likes to do it. But it is only horrifying. It is only terrible. If you are unprepared for a Christian... The thought of your death can be a joyous thought. Because, again, it is the time that you are free from sin. The time that you are released from this world, from bondage. It is the time when you meet face-to-face the Savior who loves you. He loves you. And so, learn to number your days. That's what Moses says in Psalm 90. Lord, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Or did you hear what we said today in our intro? 
Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. That puts everything into perspective. How would you live if you were going to die tomorrow? How would you live if you might die tomorrow? Live that way now. Work out your salvation, St. Paul says, with fear and trembling. So there is an appropriate kind of fear to have about the end. It is not a fear of what is coming upon you. You don't have to fear God's wrath and judgment. You don't have to fear horrors and destruction. You don't have to fear any of that because you are in Christ Jesus. But you should, nonetheless, as St. Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Here's how to picture it in terms of the parable. Those virgins had lamps that needed to remain lit. Imagine a pitch black evening, there's a storm, and you're in your house, and the power goes out, and you grab your phone, and you shake it to turn on the flashlight, and now you can see clearly. Thank God that now you can see. But what would happen if you drop that phone, and the flashlight goes out, and now you're in the dark? How will you ever find light again? This, I think, is one of the reasons why in the sanctuary of the temple they had a a candle, a flame, that needed to be lit constantly. It's because it was dark in there. If that candle were to go out, if that light were to go out, who could see to light it again? If the lamps that you have go out, you cannot light them again unless more light is given to you, and you don't get to get that on your own. You can't go and find light when you're wandering in the darkness. And so... Hold fast to that light. Keep your lamps lit constantly. Keep your oil reserves full. Lest the lamp go out and be lost in the darkness. Here's how Solomon puts it in Ecclesiastes. The wise person has eyes in his head. But he sees how much he needs the light. But the fool walks in darkness. He says, I don't need the light. I can find my way around. And what does he do? He stumbles and trips and falls. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Not fear of God's wrath, but fear that you would let go. That you would lose faith. That you would lose heart. That you would lose hope. Instead, keep your lamps full. Here's how you do it. You stockpile. I know we've talked a lot about not stockpiling money, not hoarding treasures on earth where moth and rust can destroy and thieves can break in and steal. And that's important Jesus says clearly that you shouldn't store up treasures on earth for yourself to satisfy your own passions and your own desires. But we also have a biblical example of people stockpiling for a day of need. So think back to the story of Joseph and Egypt. Pharaoh has that dream that terrifies him of seven skinny cows eating up seven fat cows and seven withered stalks of grain devouring seven fat and full stalks of grain. And he asks Joseph, what does this mean? And God gives Joseph the interpretation. It means seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. And Joseph says, well, if only there was somebody who had some practical wisdom, who could tell you what to do during those seven years of plenty. You could set aside a portion of what you have in your harvest, and then you will have some to feed your people in the time of need. God, in fact, does this very same thing when he gives instructions for the Sabbath. You know that you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath in the Old Testament. From sundown on Friday evening to sundown on Saturday evening, no work, and that includes no work of preparing food. And so what are you supposed to do if you're in the wilderness as the people of Israel and there's manna every day and you're supposed to go out and collect manna in order to eat every day? What do you do on the Sabbath? Well, God says, 
I'm going to give you twice as much as you need the day before the Sabbath. And so go and collect twice as much because you can't collect on the Sabbath. God also gave them a Sabbath year. Six years you're supposed to sow in your fields and harvest. But the seventh year, leave the ground fallow. Don't sow. Don't reap. Let everyone gather what they need for the moment so that the poor can be fed as well. But don't put anything into the ground and don't store up grain for yourselves. And if you say to yourself, God says, how will we have enough on that seventh year? And then for the eighth year, too, when we didn't plant, how will we have enough? God says, on the sixth year, I'm going to give you three years worth. Store it up so that you have plenty when there is a time of need. Store it up so that you have plenty when I take away from you what I normally give to you. That's common sense. That's common sense, and that's how we should think about this coming day. The day that you know nothing about. You don't know the timing of it. You don't know when it's going to happen. And so you should stockpile now what you need for that day. I want you to think of yourselves like the cheapskate at the old country buffet who's stuffing his pockets full of dinner rolls. That's how you should think about yourself. Here's a buffet before you. Grab arm fills. Fill yourselves up. Stuff them in your purses and your bags. Carry it around with you everywhere so that when the day and the hour arrives, you will not be lacking anything. Think like a prepper. You know what a prepper is. Somebody who's got a cellar full of everything that they might need in case there's a nuclear apocalypse and there's no food and no, no harvest. Everything's destroyed. They've got everything they need in a bunker for that day. Think of yourselves like a prepper, not storing up material things, but eternal things. It is ridiculous, of course, to think that on the day of the Lord, canned goods and firearms will help you at all. But here's what will help you. God's word. It really is God's word, plain and simple. It is the Bible, plain and simple, that helps you on the last day. It seems too little, and that, I think, is why so many people disregard it. So many people treat it as something that isn't important or an afterthought. It's because it seems like it won't help you on that day, but that is the only thing that can help you. God's word is the one thing. It is the oil of the Spirit that keeps your lamps lit. And so... Do these things. If Sunday morning in church is not a non-negotiable for you, if it's a decision that you make every Sunday morning or every weekend, whether or not you're going to come to church, change that now. Make it non-negotiable. Be in church every Sunday, filling your lamps with oil. Make your daily reading of the Bible indispensable. Make that the thing that everything else has to move for. Make that the thing that is habitual and regular, that you can't go without. Build it in to your schedule so that daily you are filling your lamps with oil. Use, learn to use your spare moments wisely. St. Paul talks often about making the best use of the time. Here's how he puts it to the Ephesians. He says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Learn to use your spare moments wisely. Redeem the time. None of you should ever be bored. Why were you bored? I didn't have anything to do. What were you doing? I was scrolling on Facebook. 
That won't cut it. Fill your spare moments with God's word. Now is the time to stuff your pockets full of God's word. Carry it with you in your heart. Take this exercise into your days. Make sure each day is seasoned with God's word. Read his word and hold it in your heart and think about it. Ponder it during the day. Pray about it. Talk about it with your friends and your family and your neighbors. Fill every moment with God's word. Don't be lazy. That's one of the devil's favorite plays. It's not out-and-out atheism. It's not saying, I hate God, I despise his word. It's just thinking that it's not worth the effort. It's considering it lightly. Here's how Solomon describes the lazy man in Proverbs. I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense, and behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. That is what happens. If you do not take guard, if you are not diligent, if you don't watch and pray, if you neglect God's word. I know I say this to you all the time, but I feel I ought to say it to you more often. Can there really be a time when you have too much of God's word? Can there be any corner of your life in which God's word should not find its way? Is there a moment in your day when God's word is not relevant? Fill your lives with God's word. And then you will be sure. Because God's word, God's word is what gives you light. The moment you step away from God's word, the moment you say, I don't need it for this moment, for this part of my life, for this problem, this trouble, this situation. I don't need it because I got things figured out. I don't need it because I'm dealing with earthly, temporal things. The moment you say that is the moment you put yourself in darkness. Remain in the light. Listening to God's word is not some good work that you do. It's not by stockpiling God's word in your life. You are hoarding up good works that will be some merit to you on the last day. It is simply this. It's listening to Jesus. It's listening to his voice. It's listening to the one who calls you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. By stuffing your cupboards and your pockets and your pantries full of God's word, you are confessing what you know to be true. That man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You are turning your ears toward your Savior, whose word speaks life into the grave. If you want a reason to love God's word, listen to what it can do. It created you out of nothing. It spoke peace to the wind and the waves, calming them down. It spoke into that tomb where Lazarus lay for four days, and out he came, alive and anew. God's word calls into the darkness and says, you are my beloved children. That's what God's word can do. Love it. Treasure it. Store it up for yourselves. Christ died for you that you might live. He died for you so that you could live eternally. He came into the darkness and showed light to everyone. Cling to that light. He has not destined you for wrath. That's what St. Paul says. He's not destined you for wrath, but eternal life through the forgiveness of sins. Treasure that. Hold that fast. Don't be fools like those five virgins. Don't be fools. Don't dread the last day, but instead rejoice and be ready, prepared to greet your bridegroom who loves you and wants you to enter into the feast with him forever. To God alone be all glory, now and forever. Amen. Amen.